Salam guys, I'm Mohsin. Welcome to this episode of Millionaire Muslim. Before we get into this episode, we just wanted to spend a few seconds telling you about Islamic Finance Guru or IFG for short. Mohsin and I co-founded IFG in 2015 because we couldn't find content about personal finance and Islamic finance for Muslims like you and I. Nowadays, alhamdulillah, we reach an audience of hundreds of thousands and our goal is to keep providing great content to help you guys. So if you're looking for halal investments and Islamic mortgages or startup funding, check us out at islamicfinanceguru.com. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, you can get me on mohsin at islamicfinanceguru.com and you can get Ibrahim on ibrahim at islamicfinanceguru.com. Enjoy the episode. Since its launch, tens of thousands of Muslims have given zakat through NZF. We're the only platform with a national reach enabling you to give zakat to those who need it here. Across the country, Muslims are in need. Your zakat has the potential to change their lives. Just go to www.nzf.org.uk to calculate your zakat, choose how it's used, and keep updated about the impact it's having on the lives of Muslims where you live. NZF. Give zakat here. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Millionaire Muslim Podcast. With me, I have one extremely regular attendee of this podcast. He goes by the name of Mohsin Patel. Uh, Although he has been called worse and uh, has responded to that as well. Muhammad Sawaf is our guest all the way from Canada. Though these days, what's the Atlantic Ocean between friends, especially in these times of COVID? I mean, if a virus can get across the ocean, then we certainly can via the internet. Muhammad, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Brother Ibrahim and Mohsin, uh, for having me. It's truly a pleasure. Fantastic. Well, Muhammad, it'd be great to just hear your story because you have, I think, an interesting background based out in Canada because I know that you studied and spent time in London. You also have connections to the Middle East. It's a real kind of shakshuka or like biryani of a background that you've got going on. So, I love that. Yes. <laughs> delineate and kind of break down the different ingredients that have gone into it. Yeah, no, it's my pleasure. Hello, everyone. My name is Hamad Sawaf, and I'm the co-founder and the CEO of Menzel, an Islamic fintech startup based out here in Canada, more specifically Toronto, Ontario. I think the Muslim aspect of the story is no different to what we usually hear is I'm a first generation Canadian. My parents emigrated from Palestine in the early 70s. And growing up here, especially, let's call it 30, 40 years ago, anything to do with Islamic lifestyle or products were very, very limited. In fact, I believe the first mosque here in Toronto originally originated vis-a-vis the conversion of a Christian church. We've had a robust halal food industry now, as they call it, it's about a billion dollar industry. And that took over 30 years to get to this point. But Islamic finance, the solutions and the products that we all hear about, especially from the Middle East and Southeast Asia, and of course, most notably, as a Western example, the UK, which is a desire that we all want to see being modeled or replicated here in Canada, has been very, very slow to come to market. And my background really starts from undergrad, no different than most Middle Easterns or South Asians. They want to do a Bachelor's of Science. They want to get into med school and then hopefully to have a career in medicine. And that, unfortunately, did not happen for me, although I did take an undergrad and bachelor's of science. But I ended up in finance immediately after I graduated. And this was in the peak markets of 2007. 
And 2008, of course, was a crisis that we all endured globally and domestically. And that really facilitated a shift in my mindset that became a little bit more prudent. And as a wealth advisor, as a person in retail and wealth management banking, there was an approach that I took to try to attract the local community, which is quite strong, into financial services. And it was very, very hard for me because, of course, the products weren't available. And so there was really this lack of appetite, let's say, to get into this. And even when I was talking to the executives at these firms that I was working with, with respect to the opportunity, it really came down to not understanding how to structure a product that would comply with the regulatory environment here, along with the tax and legal issues that come along with it. And then, of course, satisfying the Sharia compliance of it. And I was an amateur when it came to understanding the basics of Islamic finance. We all grew up just knowing that riba is haram, and this is something that we need to avoid. So fast forward to 2014, I started my MBA here at the Rotman School of Management out of U- University of Toronto. And I got hooked up with a professor who was teaching the only Islamic finance course at the graduate level here in Canada. And I immediately became his TA and co-lecturer for that course. And alhamdulillah, we did that for about eight years. But the premise behind that course was really to understand how to structure Sharia-compliant financial instruments that not only complied with the religious aspects, but also complied with the Canadian regulatory framework. Because we all know that here in Canada, they haven't really changed that regulatory framework to allow for the structuring of these financial products, not like the UK, where I think you guys are probably 20 years strong into the FCA coming in, regulating that environment and being able to allow for Islamic banks and Islamic institutions to come into place and do their dealings in a halal way. And that actually led me into a second master's and now a doctorate in Islamic finance, which is UK-based out of the Henley Business School out of the University of Reading. And my thesis currently today is really looking at the UK Islamic finance and banking environment and how, if we were to replicate that model here in Canada, what it would take from a political aspect, from a regulatory aspect, and everything in between to ensure that this could be done. Because we are, at the end of the day, a commonwealth country. Your queen is our queen. And there are lots of similarities, even with respect to the demographics. UK, I believe, from the last census data, has about 2.66 million Muslims. Currently in Canada today, we have about 1.6, growing to about 2.6 by 2030. So not only does this make this the fastest growing demographic here in Canada, but will be the second largest religious base after Catholicism. And so in 2017, when I left corporate and I got into kind of my first fintech startup, I wasn't the founder. I really then got the idea that it doesn't take a lot of capital to establish, let's call it a fintech play here in Canada. But why don't I use that and add this layer of Islamic finance and product structuring to be able to get it into the community as quickly and as fast as possible? And so in 2017, Menzel, the idea was kind of established. We started to engage with our legal team, an audit and consultancy team, as well as our Sharia board to basically say, how can we get a mortgage product structured? And then, of course, find a vehicle 
that will enable it to be financed in a halal way. And that was about two years of R&D, I would say. Once the, that R&D phase completed and that the legal team was satisfied, as well as the audit team and the Sharia board were all satisfied with how this Murabaha mortgage product was structured, we then went about and said, well, how do we finance this transaction in a halal way while not having to rely on riba-based capital from these conventional institutions that are available to us? And so we designed our own halal mortgage fund, which is a retail-based fund. It's a mutual fund trust which is listed on one of the private capital markets here in Canada and available to the community, not just the Muslim community, but even beyond that. And alhamdulillah, once that was launched this year in January, we've seen some really, really good results, some really good traction into that. Our wait list continues to grow. It's currently about half a billion dollars in growing at about 50 to 100 million a month. And there's ongoing demand with no marketing efforts on that side. But of course, limited with respect to the amount of funding that comes through our fund to be able to deploy into that program, alhamdulillah. So I hope that's a good introduction to kind of the inception of this idea and where we are today. I'm happy to move forward with some follow-on questions from there. Yeah, brilliant. Jazakallah khair, Muhammad, for that. Um, well, yeah, okay. Because normally what happens at this point is I fulfill my kind of childhood ambitions of being a surgeon by kind of forensically excavating key pieces of information out of my guest. But in this case, alhamdulillah, you've given all the relevant information voluntarily <laughs> up front in a completely painless manner. I mean, I was interested to hear more about two things. One was you've gone for this fund approach in Canada, and that's obviously different to the way that someone like Arrayan and Gatehouse in the UK have done it where they've gone for like a savings account route, they've gone for like, they've got a banking license and they've gone down that whole route. Was it like a regulatory reason that led to that? Or what was the thinking there? And then also, it would just be great to hear about what Muslim scene is like compared to the UK or compared to the USA in Canada. Yeah, no, those are very, very good questions. So for us, it was really about how do we develop a product and get it to market as fast as possible. And I think that's usually kind of the startup syndrome with respect to how fast can we get an MVP into the marketplace because we know that there's traction available. Unlike the UK, the Canadian, let's call it banking environment, is very, very conservative, very, very prudent in its approach, as well as the key players that are in the industry. So I don't know how many nationally regulated banks there are in the UK, but I can tell you that in Canada, there's only about six, six main players. And they are a huge lobby and it's a very closed group. And so there hasn't really been an instance of, let's call it a challenger bank status or this neobank status that is eligible for the smaller players in the market. We don't really have a competitive scene here in Canada, especially when it comes to banks and airlines and telecom, it's an oligopoly. There's two, three players in each of these sectors, heavily regulated and very high barriers to entry. And so that was one of the main reasons why we took the approach under the licenses that we currently have as a mortgage broker and mortgage lender to say, well, if we wanted to satisfy getting a product into the marketplace with a mortgage, then let's limit ourselves to what we absolutely need to ensure that there are no issues from a regulatory perspective and a compliance perspective. 
Now, as we grow as a firm, because we are getting into multiple product lines, we then can say to ourselves, well, is there now a case to be made because we have the client base, we have the resources to then submit a formal application to our regulatory authority and say, there now is a need for an Islamic bank via a deposit taking structure, right? And so that was the reason for our fund approach, because to be a deposit taking entity, again, you're basically applying for a full fledged bank license. And that is a lot of capital. It's a lot of time and process, legal and consulting work required. And so that is one of our long term goals. But the fund approach allowed us to access capital from this same retail segment, although not via deposit, but via yeah. investment vehicles, because we know that this same community had a complete lack of access to halal income-based instruments, right? There are equity-based investment instruments that are available, but from a fixed income, quote-unquote, fixed income perspective, we are the only fund now available to the same community. So now, when it comes to an investment approach, they have the ability to diversify their portfolios with a non-correlated asset. We look at this as more of a marketplace. It's a peer-to-peer marketplace where this same community is investing in a fund that allows for the other side of the community to access mortgages via this pool of capital. And they can now return in a halal way. Because for example, like I can give you an example of my father-in-law and my brother-in-law. So my brother-in-law, when he was buying a house, obviously there were no halal mortgage instruments for him to access. So my father-in-law basically gave him the money as a fund hassan to basically buy his house fully in cash. Now, the winner in this transaction was definitely my brother-in-law because he was able to take advantage of a 0% loan for a number of years. But my father-in-law was the one that lost financially, of course, not in the eyes of Allah. Allah but, you know, I was going to make that point. <laughs> but from a financial perspective, he eroded his capital, right? Because he wasn't even earning a return to keep up with inflation. And so that's where this model from a long-term perspective becomes unsustainable. And so at least we have a vehicle to say, you know what? You can invest in a halal instrument, earn a halal return, and at the same time, support your community locally. That's brilliant. I think that makes a lot of sense. I'm slightly angered by how hard the Canadians have made any newcomers to the banking scene to get on with it. That just stinks of competition claim if ever I saw one. I'm not sure how I feel about that. It's good and bad. Obviously, the bad of it, it doesn't introduce competition. The good of it is post-2008, Canada's banking system was recognized as the top for eight consecutive years up until 2015. And since 2015, according to the World Economic forum in the top 10 of banking systems. So, you know, the good thing is, is that there is a prudent and stringent regulatory environment to ensure stability, of course, not only for the economy, but for the Canadian citizens and and permanent residents and and migrants that are here. And of course, if we ever decided to export, right, what we built from an operational processes perspective, it would be of world class, right? So I totally agree with you that it definitely hinders competition. But I think long term, for the benefit of the economy and the society, this has fared well. And you have to put yourselves in their shoes. If it's not broken, why fix it? And why introduce risk? Right. So it'll be up to us to prove to them that what we've created here within Menzo is of the same caliber, right, of what is already out there. 
and that they should help promote this alternative way of financing. And Muhammad, what happens normally, like you said, like in recent years, you've not really heard anyone come along in Canadian bank. Is it that what happens normally is these big Canadian banks, if anyone's doing something vaguely interesting, they'll just buy them out. Is that how it normally works? Or Absolutely. Or really? Yeah. Yeah, we've seen many, let's call it smaller players that have introduced, not let's say call it full-fledged banking products, but let's say a product that is attractive to a certain demographic or a certain sector or niche. And then, of course, it just becomes an acquisition. And most of the time, this is the unfortunate piece, actually, is that those entities are acquired for large sums of money and then they're just shelved. Wow. Yeah. That is really anti-competitive. Yes. And it's very, very common amongst the telcos, the airline industry, as well as the banking industry. Muhammad, you need to sort it out. (laughs) I'm trying. I have lots of conversations with all the levels of government because they're all interested in kind of what we're doing. But I think really what they want to see is the proof points, right? How many clients are actually coming onto your platform, right? Versus just traction. How much funding have you actually deployed? And again, we tell the community that you're asking us not to rely on Yerba-based capital through the conventional banking system. So it'll be up to the community whether this becomes a success or a failure, right? And there's many, let's call it, attempts that have come through locally, albeit not sustainable solutions and not structured in a way where they've convinced the community that it's fully Sharia compliant, and they haven't really had the traction, right, that we all expected to. And that's probably just because the NIA wasn't there to really do something that was end-to-end Sharia compliant like Menzel. I would go far to say that we are the only AOFI compliant organization here in Canada that abides by all of the standards and rules that AOFI institutes, right? We have all the levels of governance in place to ensure that we have internal Sharia auditors, we have an advisory board as well as a Sharia supervisory board to make sure that we're at this gold standard that you would see from the UK banks like Arrayan and Gatehouse or these Middle Eastern banks like Dubai Islamic Bank and Abu Dhabi Islamic Bank and even as far east as the Malaysian banks. So that's been kind of the premise of Menzel from the outset, right, is to ensure that we're constantly at the gold standard and that if any competition or competitor player wants to come in, they will have to compete with us. Mohammed, in terms of the Muslims in Canada, what is their general perception of your sort of product? And just to kind of give you some context on that, here in the UK, obviously you've got a large number of people who want these products and will support these products. But what we notice regularly is also a lot of skepticism from people They might be skeptical about the fact that Islamic mortgages are more expensive, for example, and they might, as a result, kind of lash back at that by saying, oh, actually, this product is not Islamic at all, etc., etc. I know it might be hard to give a broad brush approach on this, but what's the general kind of feeling? Is it receptiveness or is it skepticism? I actually think it's a bit of both. I think when we originally launched, there was definitely skepticism just because there's been this ongoing bitterness left in people's mouths with respect to previous attempts that haven't succeeded. And Mm. so, you know, when Menzel came out, there was this questioning of who are you guys? Who's backing you? Are you truly Sharia compliant? We constantly get the request of, we want to view your documentation, right? Mm. And I I tell these people, I said, well, our Murabaha mortgage product is 110 pages of legalese. Unless you're a lawyer or you're a specifically real estate lawyer, you probably wouldn't understand 
Now, that's fine if you want to do a control find and not find the word interest, but that's not even enough, right? Mm. <laughs> and so I think what's happened over the last three years is Menzel has closed the gap when it comes to establishing that trust and credibility. The longer you're around, the more that people start to use your product and say, hey, yeah, I am invested in the Menzel fund. Or you know what? I did get a mortgage from Menzel. We may not be doing hundreds or thousands a year, but the program is working. And the community we know is very concentrated. It's very tight knit. And so word of mouth really does spread. And everything comes down to reputational risk. So every time I talk to my coworkers, my colleagues, my employees, I always tell them that everyone here is a walking liability. Everything that you do or say, right, the community is going to look at it with a microscope. And so we always need to ensure that we're managing those expectations and building that trust and credibility. And I think up until this point, we've been doing a really, really good job at that because they do see us at the main conferences. We sponsor a lot of the local events. We partner with a lot of the organizational charities that we have, including National Zakat Foundation, Penny Appeal, or Islamic Relief. When they see these third-party partners aligning themselves with our brand, then in and of itself, that is a reflection on them saying, hey, this is something we like to be aligned with, and we're happy to support them as they are supporting us. Mm, definitely. That's really interesting. Just zooming out for a second, kind of away from the Muslim scene, I'm quite keen to understand just more about the Canadian startup scene and also like the Muslim segment within that startup scene. Because at IFG, we love supporting startups, we love talking about startups. It's a big part of what we do. And Canada isn't really somewhere where I've got a tremendous amount of knowledge of. I don't really have any family there. I don't really have any sense of Canada. It'd be great just to get a sense of what the startup scene is like over there, what it's like being a Muslim startup over there, and how you got started on your journey and what you found. Yeah, so that's a very good question. I would say the startup scene, particularly fintech, probably started to gain the traction that we were seeing in, let's call it late 2013, 2014. So it's not really a mature market. But what we have seen is exponential growth. And there are really two kind of tech hubs in Canada, mainly Toronto, as well as Montreal. Montreal is very well known to be an AI machine learning hub. And mm. you have companies like Google and Microsoft and even Amazon who are creating and buying AI machine learning type startups and incorporating them into their overall businesses. Toronto has actually been an extension of Waterloo, right? The University of Waterloo, Wilfrid Laurier, they've been kind of the hub to create these computer scientists and computer engineers. Google has been there since day one. I would say there's been about a 20 to 25 year history with respect to startups. It's a 45 an hour drive between Waterloo and Toronto, but that's now called the tech corridor. And so what we've seen from the startup world is a year over year increase, exponential increase, not only in the amount of startups, but the, in the amount of tech talent and, of course, the applicable funding. It's not as mature as the United States. I'd still say we're about five years behind from the U.S. currently speaking, but we are starting to gain that traction because we are seeing a lot of U.S.-based VCs start to look north of the border and say, especially with their strong currency, well, I can get a 30% premium or discount, whichever way you mm. want to see it, by investing in these startups here in Canada, as well as the talent that comes along with it. 
And as a founder myself, this was new to me because when I was in corporate, it was very rigid. It was very stringent. I was in a box. And then now you move into startup and it's like this sense of I can do whatever I want until somebody comes knocking on my door. It's kind of feeling, right? And so I truly had to build those contacts from scratch, start networking within VC groups and angel groups, everything from scratch. And it's really comes down to your ability to network and to share your story. And I Mm. think as the only Islamic fintech, and that's based on my research, we're the only Islamic fintech here in Canada. It's been very, very difficult because a fintech in itself is a niche. And there's only a certain amount of people that understand the metrics, the unit economics, and how things need to be created in order to attract a certain clientele. And then once you add the layer of Islamic finance, now you're basically in this uphill battle of having to educate them, having them to understand what this community faces from a financial inclusion perspective, from being underbanked, and the accessibility of these products, which were never accessible before. And so those conversations have, let's say, taken longer than I would say a regular fintech probably would have with those same people. And the outcome has always been, I never even knew that this was even an issue, Mm. right? Thank God for the UK, because at the end of the day, at least we have a Western example to point to, to say what we're doing here in Canada is nothing new. It's being done around the world everywhere. It's just Mm. hasn't been done here. Right. And so we give examples of the UK. We give examples of these fintechs that are Dubai based or Malaysia based. And then we start to paint that picture that what we've done is just localized it to the current environment here in Canada. Just touching on one thing you mentioned there about the importance of networking early on. Obviously, listeners of this podcast will know that we're constantly trying to encourage entrepreneurship. And many people listening to this podcast will be budding entrepreneurs or they'll currently be trying to do something what would your advice be for those sorts of people and in terms of networking in particular have you got any kind of golden nuggets that you've picked up over the years i think it is actually the key driver like ever since i started my mba i truly saw the value of networking and it is an approach where you do have to get out of your comfort zone like I'm talking now, but I'm an introvert by nature, right? You Mm. could put me in a room in a hole in the corner with my book and I'd be completely happy. But of course, I have to obviously have this extrovertedness with respect to the conversations and the meetings and the people that I approach because that's what it takes. And so Mm. because I also teach at the business schools here, and this is some of the questions that I also get from some of my undergrad and my graduate students. And I always tell them, I said, do not take networking lightly. You may have employers coming just to see you because of your school, but that doesn't mean they're going to pick you, right? They're only Mm -hmm. going to pick one or two people from your program. And guess what? Everyone has that 4.0 GPA. Everyone has those extracurricular activities that they tout. And everyone has somebody that works in some of those firms that you can easily access somebody to sit down with. Mm -hmm. But what about a situation when you don't have access, right? When you're not that banker's niece or nephew, then you really have to put yourself in front of them and introduce yourself. And always, 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 there's nothing wrong with asking for a coffee. These days, it's a Zoom coffee. But there's nothing wrong with reaching out to somebody and saying, I'm really, really interested in the organization that you work with, would love to learn more about what you're doing. And maybe this could be something that we could just build a relationship over time 
Because when the day comes that there is some sort of opening or they have this idea in mind, you want them to think of you first. That's really the approach, right? It's top of mind, right? And if you're not top of mind, then you're out of sight. Hmm. And so if you can be that person where you are top of mind, where it's like, you know what? I really had a good conversation with that individual. I don't see anything now, but as days and weeks and months go along, if something does come up, you want them to link that with the memory of you. And that's what's happened with Menzel over time is anytime they hear about Islamic finance, they'll say, oh, we know somebody in that space and it's Menzel. Why don't we go talk mm. to them? Or maybe you should go talk to them. And there's many times where we've been approached to say, we heard about you guys. And I always, always want to know, how did you guys hear about us? Was it just research or no, we were actually introduced to you by this person. And this is the reason why. So I mm. think you have to have this mindset of consistently and constantly being out there and doing it is on an effort basis. The more networking you do, the better you'll be at it and the more people you have in your networks. And I think from a tech perspective, I think LinkedIn does the best job of that from just being able to introduce yourself to people. And of course, just reaching out. You have to be proactive. If you're just going to sit there and you think that people are going to call you, it's not going to happen. So true. What's the killer line that you use, Muhammad, on LinkedIn to get people to uh, respond to you? I don't think I have like a one line that I consistently use, but usually what I try and find are some commonalities, right? Or if I do want to be introduced to somebody, I would rather be warm introduced through somebody that's a mutual friend. So I would look through their list of people that they know. I would look at the mutual friends and I would reach out to them and say, hey, how well do you know this person? And if you know them well, do you mind making an intro? And this is the reason for my intro. So that it's not just, hey, you guys should shoot me. It's, hey, Muhammad is a good friend of mine. I think he's really up to something good. And I really want you to listen to his story and then take it from there. It's about leveraging those connections with respect to those mutual relationships. And I always, always take it from the approach of wanting to build a mutually beneficial long-term professional relationship. That's the approach. Because if you have this mindset that this is going to be win-win, and it's not just I'm going to take, 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 because nobody wants to deal with somebody who just wants to take, take, take. It's got to be mutually beneficial. So if there's something that I can get out of it and you can get out of it, then that is really the best approach when it comes to introducing yourselves and looking at what the long term would be. No, that, that makes complete sense. Mohammed, I wanted to ask you about Obviously, you guys, ones that are doing entrepreneurship and doing it in a great way, and I can sense it from the conversation that you're working hard at it and you're hustling away. What's the scene like in the Muslim community generally? Like, what are the young people doing in the Muslim community? Are they generally still going into the professions or are they thinking about entrepreneurship or like are there family businesses that people have historically set up and they're now inheriting? What's the big trends that you're seeing? Yeah, so I would say mainly just because Canada, generally speaking, is a, let's call it first slash second generation type Muslim community for now, mainly going into the professional careers. And it's now kind of expanded beyond engineering and medicine. We're seeing a lot going into advisory or consulting. Accounting fields are huge. There's still, I would say, a huge lack in banking. Like I could tell you right now off the top of my head, the five to 10 people that are in wealth management across Canada, there's not many, right? And we all know each other and we all know that this is it. Like it's just us, right? And so 
I think that is a sector that is lacking greatly. And I know there's the sentiment of, well, I don't want to get into conventional financial services or banking because I don't want my income to be haram. But when I went in, even though I knew this, there was still the intention or the need that allow me to learn from this experience, gain the skill sets that I need in order so that I can transfer those skill sets into something that is beneficial to the community and to the ummah. And I don't regret my experience in conventional banking at all because I can now relate to those people that I sit in front of. I can speak their language. I understand their regulatory frameworks, their banking compliance and models and how everything needs to be fit in a certain structure in order for them to even look at a venture like ours. And so I think there's a huge gap there. I also do think there is a huge gap within entrepreneurship. There is now a lot of people working for startups, but not many Muslim founded startups. And that's, I just think because of like the risk appetite is not there yet. Even when it comes to Menzel, like if we're looking at like the Muslim community and their appetite for private placement investments, I would say it's very, very low, if not any. Like even Menzel as a startup, there is literally no one in my cap table that it has a Muslim background, right? All of my backers are non-Muslim and mainly Jewish or Christian. And they see Menzel as an opportunity that hasn't been tapped into. And that's the opportunistic and positive vision that they had. And that's the reason why they cut those checks. So I've been disappointed, generally speaking, with respect to just the Muslim high net worth individuals, because there doesn't seem to be support with respect yeah. to Muslim initiatives. And I don't what know is, what it'll take to change that. A lot of high net worth, I suppose, in the UK are similar in that they typically want to invest in property and maybe a little bit in stocks and shares, give it to someone like Deutsche or Morgan Stanley or someone and then let them manage their money for them rather than take any really kind of calculated risks with it. Is that kind of the same approach over there as well, or is it something different? I think it's very similar. I think with some of the ultra high net worths or high net worths or even the family offices that I'm aware of, most of it is in, let's call it asset backed investments or with these well established firms that have special instruments, right? You know, that nobody else has access to. And so they kind of create this illusion of exclusivity that this is for you and not for everyone else, which is unfortunate. But I do know that there has been some investments from these individuals in, in other areas, but I've yet to understand why, because the demand here has always been, we need Islamic finance, we need a potentially at, in the long term an Islamic bank, but yet there hasn't been kind of that grassroots support the retail investors can only do so much, right? But it's where the high net worth and the ultra high net worth can really, really boost something if they're aligned with that mission and vision. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, best of luck. And I'm sure we can compare notes as, uh, as we progress on our journey on this end as well in the UK. I think for us, a big part of our thesis, the reason why we quit our jobs and packed it in was because we want to help create a kind of Muslim Silicon Valley but it takes two to tango and you need an investor ecosystem as well as an entrepreneur ecosystem. And it's only when the two kind of come together and you help, you've got different vintages, different levels of experience and history on both sides 
that you can actually create a really good ecosystem. So yeah, let's see where we both get to on our respective journeys. Yeah, no, I, I think what you guys are trying to do from a, a mission and vision perspective is very commendable and much needed, right? And I think if there's a way where people can just say, yes, I want to align myself with Muslim-based organizations or entrepreneurs or startups, and the way to do it is with IFG, then that's absolutely fantastic. But as you said, it takes two to tango. And I think with everyone's efforts, and as some of these companies start to have successful growths and successful exits, that story becomes a lot more easier to communicate. Yeah, sure. By that time, the horse has already bolted, though. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, of course. Yeah. I'm sure when Munzil is listing for many billions of dollars, then it will be quite an easy sell. But... Inshallah, yes, <laughs> I know. And then we'll reflect back on these days and think of how simple it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Before we wrap up, Muhammad, I'm just conscious of the time. One thing I'm always keen to ask people is, A, what they're reading at the moment, and B, what they'd really recommend. And since we're a kind of business and finance-focused podcast, it would be good if the books relate to that sort of topic about business, finance, entrepreneurship, that kind of thing. Yeah, so I can't say that I'm reading anything quite enjoyful these days just because my thesis takes up most of my reading from academic studies and I don't want to bore your audience with that. But what I would <laughs> highly recommend is Elon Musk's story. That book, when I read it a couple years ago, really, and when you start to follow his story, you start to put these things in place in the sense like just his mentality, his mindset, the way he gets things done, his execution, I think is just incredible, especially mm. when you're looking at how he's talking to his shareholder group with respect to deployment of the amount of cars with Tesla. And then, of course, SpaceX and all these other things that he's managing. For me, it's just one person that I truly look up to. He's one of the guys that are just really that salmon swimming upstream and going against the grain and basically proving people wrong along the way. And it's just one of the things that I constantly reflect on and relate to as a founder and entrepreneur. And I think that is a very, very interesting book and a really good read for most people in the audience if they haven't read it. What's the title of the book, Mohammed? I think it's really just Elon Musk, like his biography, right? So let me I just... Think... Uh, yeah, it's just titled Elon Musk, Tesla, SpaceX, and the Quest for a Fantastic Future by Ashley Vance. Nice. We'll check that out. Yes, please do. Brilliant. Well, Mohammed, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. I've certainly learned a lot about banking in Canada, Muslim scene in Canada, about your background. I think your passion comes across really clearly about what you're doing. And we're completely behind you on the mission that you're on. I think it's something that's absolutely vital that needs to be done in Canada, inshallah. I hope that you uh, bring a bit more competition into this banking scene in Canada. And inshallah, in a few years' time or perhaps in a few months' time, who knows, we should get you back onto the podcast and see how you're getting on and get an update on life, the universe and Manzil. I would be more than happy to. And inshallah, we hope to bring Menzel to even the UK because we know that there's been some sentiment within the UK community of asking when we're coming over there. So hopefully the faster, the better. Brilliant. Brilliant. Jazakallah khair to uh, Muhammad and Jazakallah khair Mohsin as well for joining. Mohsin, by the way, just to out him at the final hurdle, has been uh, camped outside in his car 
because that's the only place that he can get these days that's quiet. The only other option I would have is to lock the kids in the car, but I don't think that would be um, <laughs> that would be optimal. <laughs> I think we all have our own daycares that are running right now, but uh, inshallah, it's just for daycares for our own kids and not for anyone else's for the time being. But Zakhlaou Khairan, Brother Ibrahim and Mohsin for having me. This was truly a pleasure, and I hope to do it again. Thanks, Muhammad. If you got this far, you must have enjoyed the podcast, which means you'll definitely love our other episodes and other content we produce as well, inshallah. Be sure to check out the website, islamicfinanceguru.com, as well as our YouTube channel and social media. Until next time, assalamu alaikum.